Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Our text for our sermon is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. But we look to Jesus, the one who was made lower than the angels for a little while, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Certainly it was fitting for God, the one for whom and through whom everything exists, and leading many sons to glory, to bring the author of their salvation to his goal through sufferings. For he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all have one father. For that reason, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in our Old Testament lesson in Genesis chapter 2, we saw God created marriage. And there was no sin in the world. He wanted it to be special. He wanted to point out to Adam that it was special. And when Adam saw his wife, he said, Woo, man, that's awesome. Thank you, Lord. Then we find out after the fall into sin, marriage is still there, but it's plagued by ugliness and divorce. The man isn't so great. He can be a lazy slob and she can sure be naggy. They can get at each other. But we find out in our supplemental lesson in Ephesians chapter 5 that God intended marriage to be a mini model of Christ and his bride, the church. Oh, but we have in our sinful nature found many problems wrong with the text. Women like to jump to that word submit. Verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands and they just leave it there. You want me to submit to that couch that burps and watches too much TV? That man who gets frustrated and comes home exhausted from work and doesn't give me attention? And we turn the word submission into an act of cruel slavery. We miss that as to the Lord. God truly has your best interest in mind. God is the one who made all creation. And men, men are given an impossible task. We're told to love our wives in the same way as Christ loved the church. I got to forgive. I got to live so that she's not falling into sin. I've got to make sure she's provided for and know she's forgiven and loved every day. Is it so hard to submit to somebody who truly does that? Because that's Christ. But it's not so easy to submit to that when it's a sinner, right? We men stink at this. I'm the first to admit it. Today's text is not about marriage. It really is about how Christ made you part of his body, part of his bride, the church. And to understand where today's text begins, we have to start actually at half a verse before Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, which says, Indeed, in putting everything in subjection to him, that's Jesus, God left nothing that is not in subjection to him. At the present time, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Jesus is true God, but we don't see everything in subjection to him because God in this time hides himself. He's not hiding in fear. He's working behind the things that he created, the natural principles. When we see that everything is subject to him, it's going to be scary for unbelievers because that's judgment day. My old sinful nature is going to tremble in fear. My new man is going to say, Alleluia, here it is. That's where our text begins. And through our text, we see how Christ made you his bride. We see how he made you a dress. He earned your ring. And you are now one family. So verse 29, carrying on verse 28, which it told us we don't see everything in subjection to him, even though it is. It says, yet we keep on seeing the one who for a little while has been made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. How was Jesus made lower than the angels? 
You and I have a sinful nature, and the minute we are conceived, we are in a condition that merits nothing but damnation and hell. We are absent of God's holiness. God wanted to live his life under the law to do what you and I, because we have a sinful nature, cannot do. And so he took on human flesh. The Holy Spirit knit him in the womb of the Virgin Mary, who also was a sinner. He was made lower than the angels because the angels are holy in status. They're before the throne of God. And he came to sit in a womb, to lie in the womb of a sinner. He came to live perfectly for you in your place so he could credit you with his righteousness. He came to be born under the law so he could suffer the damnation of the law while keeping the law for you in your place. And so our text continues about Jesus, the one who has been crowned with glory and honor on account of his suffering death in order that by the grace of God he would taste death on behalf of all. He now has that glory and honor. We don't see it with earthly eyes until judgment day, but we do. We see it in the fact that while it's snowing this morning, you are here in church to hear the good news that God loves you and has put his wedding dress of his righteousness on you that your sins are forgiven. We see his glory when we teach our children to know that Jesus loves them. We see his glory when we trust in his forgiveness and when we, and we see his honor when we tell others the good news that he has taken on our human flesh was below the angels that he died for us. See, not only did he have to live perfectly for us, but he had to remove our sin. And so, yes, he put our sins on his shoulders and went to that cross for you. Now, Normally, if I soak something in blood, it gets red. It gets stained. You can soak it in hydrogen peroxide and work on it. And if you don't get it out, by the time you run it through the washer and dryer, it's either red or brown in color. But Christ's blood is the blood of the God-man. When you soak something in the blood of the Lamb, the God-man, it comes out white in righteousness. And so we wear white dresses at our wedding because it's a symbol of purity. And you don't just have a symbol of purity. You literally wear Christ's righteousness. He put on human flesh to put his righteousness on you. And then he put your cross on the shoulders of his human flesh and died so that he could wash your sins in his blood. He has made your dress It's his righteousness. It's his grace. And every day you get a stain on it as I do because we sin. We get lots of stains. And he just blasts us with the fire hose of his blood, washing it right off. So he looks to you and says, what sin? I don't know what you're talking about. I see my righteousness all over you. See how Christ made you his bride? He has made your dress. Notice that our text said that he would taste death on behalf of all. Taste. He eats it. He consumes it. But when you taste something, the flavor goes. See, he died, but he rose again so that he's the first fruits and you too will rise. But he does this on behalf of all. Christ dies for the whole world. He lives for the whole world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if somebody finds themselves in hell, they have only themselves to blame. People say, well, it's not fair that God allowed Adam and Eve to fall into sin and that we all then have a sinful nature from the moment we're conceived. Well, then you have to say it's not fair that God turns around and dies for the whole world. 
Truly, if somebody ends up in hell, they have only their own damnable selves to blame for it because Christ has put a wedding dress on the whole world. And it's by faith that he's given you that the Holy Spirit has infused that wedding dress to you so that you cannot take it off. You constantly get that fire hose of his blood. Now, I don't want to embarrass my wife too much because she's in the room today, but when we were married, she wore a white wedding dress, but there was a ring. And that ring was very important to me. My wife had selected out the wedding ring that she still wears. It was the one she wanted. I was working in the summertime. I worked overtime at a machine shop that paid me very well for a college student. And part of my summer earnings had been set aside so that I could happily buy that ring. And to me, when I see my wife wearing it, it reminds me, I'm faithful to you. I love you. I don't want to lose you. And that ring is my blood, sweat, and tears, literally, because I bled a lot cutting myself open at a machine shop and got caught calluses, to say, I'm faithfully committed to you. Well, Christ has put his blood, sweat, and tears in to earn your wedding ring. Verse 10 actually explains verse 9, and it says, Indeed, it was fitting for God, on account of whom all things exist, and through whom all things exist, in order to lead many sons into glory, to bring the author of their salvation to his goal through sufferings. How can Christ win your salvation? Well, he's God, on account of whom all things exist and through whom all things exist. You can say that of all three members of the Trinity, because no member of the triune God works to the exclusion of the other two. The Father planned out your salvation and rules over all creation for you. The Son took on human flesh and died in your place, buying your wedding dress. The Holy Spirit enters your heart and gives you the faith so that that blood is yours. And all three of them were present and active at creation. God is the one who planned creation and Adam and Eve would suffer through their sin as so their children would have suffering until we receive the new heavens and the new earth and he himself planned that he himself would suffer through the cross to win your salvation. Notice how it says to bring the author of their salvation to his goal through not suffering, that would just be the cross, sufferings, plural, See, Jesus is a descendant of David according to his human flesh, and David was the great king of Israel. But Jesus is born in a barn. His parents, probably in their late teenage years, they got married early back in those days. His father, a carpenter, he's not even middle class. Jesus suffers as he's born in a barn because he can't even buy his way into, a, into an expensive room and get somebody else kicked out. Royalty would not have had that problem. Oh yes, and when Herod plans the death of Jesus, there lies God who can jump up and whammo, take care of Herod, no problem. But he chooses not to exercise the full powers of his godhood. He's below the angels right now. He's not using all of his godhood. So he has to trust in, in, in Joseph to get, the, to get the animals ready and Mary to scoop him up into her arms and Joseph beats feet down to Egypt in his frail humanity to protect this child. Jesus suffers because he's tempted. According to his human flesh, he can be tempted. According to his deity, he can't fall into temptation. So he suffers the pains of temptation 
without actually sinning. And he's tempted for you in your place. Now, the great example of that is one of our sermon texts during the Epiphany cycle when after fasting for 40 days, the, the devil leads him out into the desert and really gives him the, the, the temptation. But the devil was tempting him all along anyways. Jesus stands up to temptation for you. That's part of his remaining righteous. But he suffers the pains of temptation. He suffers the death of his earthly father, not his biological father. He's adopted, Joseph. He weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. He suffers as he sees people suffering in this world too. Jesus literally suffers on the cross. He knows hunger pains. He knows the sufferings of this world. You and I do not have a God who has like a slave master and has no concern for us. He literally feels your pain. He endured sufferings to purchase the wedding ring to tell you, I'm committed to you. And when you're suffering, don't think I would let you walk a, a two steps of that if I didn't have your good in mind. My wedding ring around you, my suffering is my promise that I feel your pain and I will not let you do that unless I have your good in mind. Now here's where we split that difference though. Before he dies for the sins of the whole world, but you notice our text said, in order to lead many sons into glory there in verse 10. Women, you're going, I'm not a son. Yes, you are. Remember in the Old Testament, the son inherited the land. The daughter was to get married and her husband would inherit the land. This is actually calling you a son. You are on equal footing. You have the glory. And that glory is your new man that is alive in Christ and is never going to die. We still have a sinful nature in this world, but you have God's glory. And that is that new man that the Holy Spirit has created because Christ earned your wedding ring. And that wedding ring is God's promise to you, whether you're male or female, you own land in heaven. You have equal status. You have the status of a favored son. Not everybody gets that. Like I said, many reject it. God offers the dress to all. Many say, no, thank you. And so we see ourselves basically like the village prostitute. Strung out on drugs, face first in the gutter, in a filthy torn dress, lying there in our own excrement, our teeth knocked out in the gutter. And Jesus took on human flesh that He could drag us out of that gutter and take us to His own home and wash us clean and get us off the junk, the drugs that is our sin. And He could put His wedding dress on us and say, I love you. I've suffered hard to do this for you. And that is my ring I put on you to show you I'm committed and promised. We see how Christ has made you His bride. He made your dress. He earned your ring. And verse 11 also is explaining verse 9 further. It says, in fact, both the one who keeps on setting apart is holy and those who are being set apart as holy are all from one. On account of this reason, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Now we translate those words, he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified. But the Greek word and the Hebrew word that was also used in the Old Testament means God sets you apart for his holy purposes. So there we were, the village prostitute lying face first in the gutter. He says, no, I'm setting you apart from the filthy purposes of this world to make you shine out as my beautiful bride. He used the Holy Spirit to set you apart by giving you that new man that is God's father. It was all in God's plan. And he says, we're all from one, one God. So those who come along and tell you whether you worship uh, Allah or whether you worship uh, some cult God, that you're all going for the same thing. No, 
We're all from one, the triune God. And we're all united literally as the body of Christ, as a branch is to the vine, we're told in John. We're all from one. So we all have that same salvation. God gives us many different natural and spiritual gifts. He gives us different personalities. But we're all from the one God, and that means our salvation is secure. And that means we're now family. My wife and I, again, to use an example, we have two children. They are the product of Fred and Melissa Sherman and God's blessing. They know who their parents are. You know who your God is. And Jesus has made you a brother who is also your Savior. And so we look around and we see on account of this reason, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Once again, women, he's saying you're on equal status. You don't have to worry about getting married or something to somebody else. So that makes us family. We may have different uh, ideas on what the lighting or the heat should be set at in our church on a day like today. But we're all one knowing we are saved and we all therefore have that same purpose in mind to proclaim the good news of forgiveness to the world around us so they can have the wedding dress and the wedding ring of Christ. You are now one family along with all those who trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. So as I said, today's text is not directly about marriage. We found out in Ephesians that marriage is meant to be a mini model of Christ's love for his church. But our text today really in that put in that context shows us how Christ has made you his bride. And we see he made your dress. He earned your ring with his own blood, sweat and tears. And it's his promise to you given to you at your baptism. And you are now one family. Amen. Now, he who began a good work in you will carry it into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.